You might not know this. This is kind of a cool thing. Uh, Theo Cook, who was up here with us, singing and prayed for Vicky. He is one of he is one of our elders, one of our chair. He was the chairman of our elders this week. You might know this. He and his family appeared on Family Feud a few years ago. They really did. And uh, Theo kind of worked it out, and he let me know that if you voted for Family Feud, we're gonna give you a 30-day break on your tithe. Only 9%, okay? You know, 1% break, okay? So what is the greatest game show of all time? What is it? What did we vote? Family Feud, 32%. All right, all right. I don't even know what that says, but here we go. Hey, I want you all to say, uh, this is important to me, I want you all to say really loud, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Here's why that's so big a deal to me. A couple weeks ago, I bought a new iPad, and I preached from an iPad, and I used it for the first time two weeks ago tonight, okay? So I came up here, and I'm not real sure how to mess with it yet, and all I could get on here were my funeral documents. That's all I had. And I didn't know how to get to the sermon stuff, so I don't even know what I told you two weeks ago, uh, but I had a few notes that helped me, and I hit this thing on, praise Jesus, sermon notes. So here we go. Now, for seven weeks, here's why we've been kind of having some fun with this. For seven weeks, we said, let's go on a journey together as a church. It's going to be a lot of fun and really helpful. And we're going to find out why Jesus is the GOAT, why Jesus is the greatest of all time. And the source of that, you know by now, is in the Gospel of John, the book of John in the Bible, the New Testament. John records seven different times where Jesus said, this is who I am. It's called the great I am statements of Jesus. And there are seven of them. This, this word picture, this metaphor where Jesus describes who he is. And my hope in all of this my hope in all of this is that it will stir up your affection for Jesus. Doesn't that sound sweet? That the more you know him, the more that you'll love him. That's our hope for this. I thought of that the other day when I was wasting some time on Facebook, because that's what it is, it's wasting time. And two of our staff families here have recently birthed babies in their home. Our worship pastor and his wife, Aquila and Abby, have a son named Judah, uh, just a couple weeks now. And our high school pastor and his wife, Luke and Michelle, have a beautiful little daughter named Holland. And I, I notice, by the way, that's daughter number three for Luke, our high school pastor. So if you see him around here, every time you pass him, give him a buck. He's gonna need it later on in life. Give him some money, just pour it out on him. So I notice that these families have been posting pictures of their little babies. And they're saying things like, oh, we're just so much in love already, you know? And, and man, that's true. You come home with a hospital, you get this baby, and the love is just off the charts. But they will find out that as time goes on, that love will increase even more. And as those babies grow up and they develop their own personalities and they start talking and they interact with people and they participate in activities of life, the more their parents know them, the more their parents will love them. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, they're going to have days when they don't like them. 
okay? But they're always going to have this love growing, 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 and growing. And that's how it happens with Jesus. That the more you know who he is, the more love just stirs up in your heart about him. And so that's why these seven I am descriptions of Jesus are so important. That every one of them, you, you learn what it means and your appreciation and your love for Jesus just becomes more and more foundational to your life. So this is a, this is a valuable seven weeks for our church. Now, we've already looked at the first two. And the first two, we'll put them up here on the screen real quick, is Jesus talked about him being the greatest bread and him being the greatest light. And what we'll deal with today as we get into the third one is that Jesus describes himself as the greatest door. And so that's the third one that comes up in the Gospel of John. And when you look at that, you, you kind of look at that and think, well, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the door? Now, there's a little technicality I want to I just spend a minute on. It really doesn't have any significance, really, at all. But I, I don't want you to be confused of it. In some translations of the Bible, instead of using the word door, they use the word gate. And so if you've ever done some work on this, you may, you may think, I don't remember door, I remember gate. And so translations generally use one or the other of those. I've got a book in my office I use almost every week in my study. And it's a, it's a really valuable volume because it takes the eight most popular translations of the Bible and it just lists them uh, right next to each other. So you can see every translation, how they did it. And this week I, I was looking at that and four of them use gate and four of them use door. So it's about half and a half. It can go, it can go either way. The actual, the actual Greek wording is thura, and thura can mean either one of those. It can mean gate, it can mean door. There are times in which it references like a gate into a city, almost like a, a gated community, and you got the gate to get in there. And then there are other times where it references a door into a building or a house of some sort. And, and I'm, I'm mentioning it not because it really makes a whole lot of difference, but I want you to know that that's why you might be thinking gate and not door. And what you'll find out in this message is that I'm going to use the interpretation of door. And you'll understand why when I jump into that. So with all that said... Let's jump into the text itself where Jesus describes himself as the greatest door, and you'll see that he said it two times. So in John chapter 10, starting in the seventh verse, I'll put it up here so you can see it as well, and then I'll read it from you from the New International Version. He said, I tell you the truth, I am the door for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. And so two times, out of the blue, Jesus brings this up as he, using these metaphors to describe who he is, and he comes up with this idea that I am the door. Now, what in the world does that mean? What in the world does that mean? So if you go to work tomorrow or school or whatever you do tomorrow, and, and you come across somebody you know, and you all get to talking a little bit, and somehow this subject comes up, and they ask you, what did Jesus mean when he called himself a door? How, how are you going to answer that? 
You ought to have a really good answer of what he meant by that. And the reality is most of us, we, we don't know. We've heard it, but we really don't know how to define that. We couldn't really explain it to somebody else. And I want to jump off just a little bit of a side branch here, and I want to say something about that. This kind of a thing is exactly why God designed our faith to be one where we gather together on a regular basis to learn his word and his will. That was within the word of God. That's within his will and wishes. And the way he put this whole Christian thing together is consistently come together so that you can learn this. And this is a little bit of a side note, but I want to make sure that I say it, is that there are some people, let's just be honest, put cards on the table here. There's some people who can see things in there that are a little confusing and they can dive in there and they've got the passion and the time and the energy to dig in there and eventually find out, oh, that's what that means. But here's the reality, most of us don't. And so we hear something like Jesus said, I'm the door, and we go, oh, that's cute, that's cool. And you go, yeah, I didn't worry what that means. That's why we do this. That's why we do this. And, and so when you look in scripture, you find that it was the regular, consistent practice of those who followed God to come together on a regular basis to be taught the will and the word of God. You find that with Jesus, when, when Jesus would go into cities, and, and often it says he came into a city on the Sabbath, and what did he do? He went to the temple. And when he walked in the temple, you read it, and they saw Jesus was there, and they asked him to get up and teach. You be the guest teacher. That makes all the sense in the world to me, dude. If Jesus walks in this room, we are handing him the mic. Are we, huh? Okay? So, so God put that together, okay? He designed it that way. And I've made this promise to you before. I'm going to stick to it as long as you let me be your preacher. When you come to Eastside Christian Church... And you spend 30, 40 minutes sitting in a chair listening to somebody up here preach. I promise you, it will be somebody who has spent the necessary time and the blood and the sweat and the energy to correctly understand the word of God and describe how it can be utilized in your life. I make that promise to you. But if you ain't here, you don't get it. And that, that's why it's, it's somewhat kind of an interesting side note that I'm jumping on here, but it is critically important when we come to texts in the Bible that aren't real clear that this is why we do what we do here. And so with all that said, what does it mean when Jesus says, I am the door? Here it is. Don't miss this. I'm not real sure. <laughs> now, we can just pray and go home and say, I don't know, it sounds cool, but I don't know what he means. And I'm telling you, we're not sure. We're not sure. 
Now, there's a part of the metaphor, the picture that he painted that is crystal clear to us. We know as we study that day and age, we kind of get the image that he's kind of presenting. One of the very popular professions in that day was to be a shepherd, a, a caretaker of sheep. That was a big deal. A lot of people were shepherds in that day. And you'd have your own kind of flock out there grazing, doing your stuff during the day. And many cities, right outside the city itself, many towns and cities would have large sheep pens. And at the night, the shepherds would bring their flocks in, and they would bring their sheep into the pen. And those pens often were, were areas without any kind of a roof. It might have, might have had rock walls around it, might have been bushes. But it was basically a large grazing area where at night, everybody's flocks would come in, and the sheep would be there for the night. And almost always, those sheep pens areas had one entrance. Everybody came in through that entrance. And that entrance right there was the door. That was the gate. And so we know literally what Jesus is doing. We know that he's referencing that picture that everybody in that day, they knew exactly what he was talking about. But we're still left with the reality of what did he mean when he said, I'm the door, I'm the gate that everybody comes through. Now, now, here's the reality, and I just want, I want, to, I want to play this with you. I want you to hang with me. It's going to be worth it if you hang with me. There, there are intelligent, godly people who think that means different things. And the reality is that when you really study it, there are three possible things that Jesus meant, and we're not totally sure about it. And godly, intelligent people through the years have landed on different ideas of that. I want to I briefly tell you those three. And then I want to zero in on one, and you'll, you'll see why I'm, I'm doing that. But here's, here's some ideas. One possible reference that Jesus is making is he's talking about the fact that he is the door of our salvation. Now, of the three that I show you real quick, I would say that that is probably the most likely. And the reason it's probably most likely is because of the context of the story itself that comes up in John 10, and the reality is that in John 9, Jesus was having a confrontational argument with the leaders of the Jewish religion, Judaism. And he was in a heated debate with them. And Judaism, the leaders of the Judaism religion thought this. They said, you're going to get right with God. You're going to end up in heaven if you obey all of the laws. That's what they believed. They would die on that. And Jesus came along and said, ain't nobody can obey all the laws. Nobody's ever been able to do that. And he said, the only way to get right with God, the only way to really end up in heaven is that somebody's got to pay the penalty for all the stuff that you did wrong. And Jesus said, I'm the one that's gonna do that on the cross. And so they had this massive debate about, watch this, how you get to the pen, heaven. And then in John 10, Jesus said, I'm the door to the pen. In other words, I am the only way to be saved. And there's a lot of people that think that's what he's talking about. Now, there are others who say there's a different view of that, and they use the idea of protection. 
That what Jesus was really saying was something about protection. And when you think about it in those terms, you kind of see that. You kind of understand that. Because at night, when all the shepherds would get their flock into the pen, there was usually somebody. Sometimes it was a shepherd. Sometimes it was a hired hand. Sometimes it was an official gatekeeper who that person would literally stay at that entrance, would lay down and sleep there that night. Why? To prevent animals coming in and attack the sheep, to prevent thieves and robbers coming in from steal the sheep. And so if Jesus was referencing that, here's what he was saying. I will protect you, child. I will protect you. And man, that's got a comforting, kind of feel-good message. And that might be what he was saying when he's talking about the fact that I am the door. Now, let me give you the third reference. And the third reference may be that he's talking about decision. And I want to explain that. That is a fascinating thought to me, and it's the one that I want to dive into uh, this evening because I am struck by the phrase that we read earlier, but I want you to see it again when Jesus described a little bit what he meant by being the door. And you remember when I read this? He said, I am the door for the sheep. And so whatever he meant by that, he was saying, this is for you. This is to help you. This is to be for you. And some Bible teachers teach that, that if Jesus is the door in your life, watch this because it makes all the sense in the world, that Jesus is active in opening doors that lead you into areas that will bless you and be good for you, and he will close doors that he knows you ought not go in there because that will bring you harm. Who in this room has never used the phrase that a door was opened for me or a door was closed for me? And it is very possible that that's what Jesus was saying, is that I will be the one who will control the doors in your life because I am for you. And it's not a mistake. We've talked about it the first two weeks here in this series. It's not a mistake that the very next verse, Jesus talked about that. Verse 10, I have come that they, who's they? The sheep, me, you. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so how can life be the best life can ever be for you? Have you ever wondered that? Of course you have. How can my life be as good as it can ever be? And how can I end up in the glory of eternal heaven forever and ever and ever? Jesus said, I want that for you, so I will be your door. I'll open it, when there are great possibilities that will bless your life and I will close the door when on the other side of it are things that will hurt you. Now, you just play around with that thought a little bit. And this becomes a really meaningful thing for me personally. You just play with it a bit and you start to realize that there are times in which Jesus has opened doors for you 
or he has closed doors for you that you never knew he was doing that until you got to the other side of that. I want to tell you my story about that. I was born into an athletic family. I was born into a sports family. It was a big, big part of our life. Sports were kind of the god, I think, of our family. And the problem with that is that I wasn't very good at sports. I love sports, but I was average at best. And it kills me to say that to you. I've got a younger brother who was better at every sport than I was. He was the guy. But I just kind of played at him because, you know, that's what you did in my family. I didn't play at it because I wasn't great. I didn't make the all-stars. Coaches didn't pull strings to get me on their team. As I got older and you had to make a team, okay, I was the guy on the cut list. When you're in that humiliating line where your friends are saying, I'll take him on my team, I'll take him. I'm the last dude there. I just wasn't very good at it. And I tried at it. I gave everything that I could at those things. I remember those days of my life where I just wanted to do good at that. And I was just always average at the very best. It just seemed everything I tried, it was just, it was like doors closing. I made a school basketball team one year, and I hardly ever got in the game. I sat at the end of the bench almost all the time. I remember the time that I got in the, in the game. It was in St. Joseph, Illinois, and I did a little math yesterday when I thought about this, and it was 47 years ago, and I remember being in the game. And I'm dribbling down the court, and I looked down, and my shoe was untied, and the ref was there, and I said, time out. I got to tie my shoe, and he called time out. I didn't know you weren't supposed to call time out. And what they want me to do? Just run down there and trip, lose the ball, what they want me to do? And so the ref gave us time out, and we got in the huddle, and my coach, who was a lunatic, was livid that we finally let you in the game and you take one of my timeouts. And he is screaming at me in this gym and he looks at me and this is the honest truth. He is so mad at me. I'm just a little middle school kid that he sends me up in the stands to sit with the fans in my basketball uniform for the rest of the game. 47 years ago, that marked me. And that's who I was with sports. I was in a sport family, a sports culture, and doggone, I, I just wasn't very good at it. And so I'm sitting in class at East Park Junior High School, Danville, Illinois, and announcement comes over to the intercom. I can hear it today. I can hear it right now. If you're interested in being on the boys' track team, there's a meeting after school in the gymnasium. And I remember thinking, track? Shoot, anybody can run. And so I go, I go to the meeting. I'm in the center of the gym, East Park Junior High School, and the coach, Coach Rich Durking, you, you people from Danville, watch, we got people in Danville watch every week. You know, you remember Coach Durking, one of the greatest men ever. Coach Durking right in the middle. And we got all these boys, and he starts telling everybody where they're supposed to go. Spreaders, go over there. Uh, field events, pole vault, shot put, you guys go over there. And I'm thinking, I didn't know there were options, man. I didn't know anything about this. And long distance runners, you go over there. And I'm going, 
I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I saw one of my friends go the long distance corner. And I walked over there just because I knew him. There's about 10 of us in that corner. And the assistant coach, Jim Skinner, you, you guys from Danville, you remember Coach Skinner. And Coach Skinner's a long distance guy. He says, all right, fellas, uh, run to Kmart and come back. And I said, <laughs> Kmart? It's on the other doggone side of town. I said, run to Kmart. Come back. We'll see how you're doing. And so we take off. It was six miles. And so we got back, and I am near death. And we're all there, and we're, uh, we're looking at Coach Skinner, and we're all about to die, and for some reason, I came back the next day. And then I came back the next day, and then I came back the next day. And I kept coming back for six years, and that became my thing. And I was never great. I was never like all, st I wasn't any of that. But I probably got better at it than I did at most anything else, okay? I ran a mile in less than five minutes. I ran marathons, 26 miles. I can't drive 26 miles a day, but I ran 26 miles then. But that, those things ain't the story. Here's a real story. As hard as it is to believe in today's world, as hard as it is to believe, every kid in that doggone long distance corner was from a devout Christian family. Every kid except one. Who do you think it was? Me. And those kids became my deepest friends. And they led me to Jesus. They introduced me to the girl who would become my wife. They encouraged me to attend a college that would teach me how to be a pastor. And many of them today are successful Christian businessmen. Some are leaders in local churches. And three of them became preachers. And as I look back at my life story, I see Jesus closing doors and opening doors because he knew in 40 years, in 40 years after that grueling run to Kmart, he needed a pastor of a great church in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And the only way to get there was to run to Kmart. That was the only way. And I... And, and I am not here. I am not here. I believe this with every ounce of my life. I'm not on this stage talking with you had Jesus not closed doors and opened doors. He said, I am the door. And I said, oh, thank God that you're the door. Because I would have went through ones that I never should have. And I might never have went through the ones that I was supposed to. And Jesus will open doors and close doors behind the scenes without you ever realizing it. And you're going to lay your head on the pillow tonight. And if you've been engaged with one-third of your brain in the last few minutes, you're going to think of your own stories. That's why he closed that door. That's why he opened that door. And you know, in reality, we could just stop right here and we can go home with that thought, but there's just something in me that thinks there gotta be something more about that. I think there are probably people in this room who are facing life-changing decisions right now. Life-changing stuff. 
Do I buy this house? Do I change jobs? What do I do about this relationship? Should I have this surgery? Is this the college I'm supposed to go to? How can I help my child right now? Should I take on that new responsibility? And I know people are thinking that because I'm your pastor and I get, I get those questions all the time. Well, ought it be comforting to know that Jesus can be your door, man? He can help you see which doors close. Don't go there. And he can help you see which doors are open because he says, that's my plan for your life. And so I think it's more than just realizing that Jesus has that ability. Is there something I can do to kind of kickstart that? Is there something I can do as I'm facing heavy decisions in my life? And so I want to send you off with three specific steps that you can take in relation to this. And they're very, very simple to say. I want to encourage you, first of all, to do this. I'm going to use the word initiate. So if you got a big decision in your life, and you got to figure out what I'm going to do about that, I want to encourage you to do this, because it's what we've been talking about right here. But I'm asking you to think through this, that you would specifically ask Jesus. You would ask him in prayer. Lord, would you start opening doors, and would you start closing doors? Am I the only one in the room, if it were up to me, I'd open the wrong doors? Am I it? And I'd close the wrong doors. But when I initiate the work of God, I spend time asking God, you take over the door. I know it might sound weird, and you might think I'm a goofball, and I am a goober. I know all that. But I'm going to tell you this, and this is the honest truth. I have never one time ever bought a car without doing that. Not one time have I ever purchased a car without asking God, God, you close the door or open the door. Why? Because you know if this is a lemon. I don't. You know if this is a smart financial decision. I don't, I don't know what's coming down the road. You know. And Lord, I, I don't even want this to happen if it's not supposed to happen. So if you got closed door, close the door. If you got open the door, open the door. I think through that. I pray about that. I remember a time I bought a car in Crawfordsville, Indiana, and my wife still gets on me about that. She goes, I can't believe you did that. But I prayed about that. I was serious about that. And I came to an understanding, I think, through the leading of God, what I could afford to buy a car for. And if I bought that car on that amount of money, then I believe God was for that. But if it was more than that, I just felt God was saying, you got to close that door. And so I went in there with that. And you all know how that works. You go back and forth and back and forth. And we just couldn't get there. And I finally told him, I'm not going to buy it, dude. The door's closed. I'm going to do it. And he said, why are you not going to do it? And I said, here's why. Because I'm a Christian. Me and him have dealt with this. And so if it's within, then he's cool with that. And if it's not, he ain't cool with the door's closed. And he looked at me like, man, I've heard all of them. I've never heard that. And he said, give me one minute. He went back behind the closed curtain, you know, where the wizard was or something. He comes back. And I'll never forget, he walks in, put his hand out, says, congratulations, you and Jesus have bought a car. So he brought it down there. <laughs> Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and, and this was Jesus saying this, ask and be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And some people look at that and think, oh, Jesus is going to do anything we want. That's not what that's saying. That's saying, God, you know if it's got to be open, you know it's got to be closed. 
And before I ever make this decision, before I ever decide where I'm going to go to college, before I ever decide who I'm going to marry, God, I'm asking you, I'm initiating it, you take care of it. You close the doors and you be closed. And listen, if the doors are closed, then they're closed. Would somebody say amen? amen. Quit trying to beat it down. If it's closed, it's because God did that because he's for you. He's for you. Let me give you a second step. After you've initiated it, now I want you to think of the word violate. You say, what do you mean by that? If I walk through a door in my life, will it violate any standard that God has given me? If I do this, is it going to break any expectation that God has for me? I can close my eyes, guys, and I can see her. I can see her face. I can see her sitting there in my office. And I can see her say to me, Pastor, God has brought him into my life. He's an incredible, wonderful man, and God has brought him to me. And I said, no, he didn't. And she said, how do you know he didn't? I said, because you already got a man. God didn't do that. God will never open a door for you if on the other side of that door is the violation of his standards that he's given to you for how you live your life. He'll never do that. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. I love this verse. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. That means God is always right. God is never, ever wrong. He is never going to open a door for you if it's going to cause you to do something that he doesn't want you to do. We would have had far less to talk about last week if Will Smith had thought about that before he jumped out of his seat. He will never open a door for you to do something that is wrong. So I hear people all the time say this. It's going to crush some of you because some of you live like this. It's going to make you upset, but, you know, deal with it, okay? Get over it. I hear people say all the time, I'll just follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. I used to call my mom. What do you think? Oh, baby, just follow your heart, follow your heart. That is a terrible, terrible thing to do. Don't ever follow your heart. Ever follow your heart. Don't ever, ever, ever follow your heart. You know why? Because your heart is evil. My heart is evil. Have you ever seen these verses in the Bible? Look at these. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. You can't even fix it. And the writer of the Ecclesiastes says it in a way, this guy must have been a bummer to hang out with. Check this out. The hearts of men are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live and afterward they join the dead. Hallelujah, man, I love hanging out with you. Your heart is not your goal. You don't make decisions to match your heart. You make decisions to be consistent with the truth of God. So God will never open a door that will cause you to violate any standards that he has. Let me give you one more and we're gonna be done with this. And that is the word evaluate. I wanna encourage you to thirdly, after you initiate and violate, I want you to think about this term evaluate. That's when you sit down with people you trust, people you love, people you care for, people care for you, and you say, would you help me work through this? Would you help me think through this because I trust you? Will you be honest with me? 
Now, I want to be blunt with you for a second. I don't know if I've ever said this, but as a, as a pastor and, and, and somewhat as a quasi-counselor as a pastor, this happens to me all the time. There's a temptation that some people have when they seek out somebody else. Hey, would you help me? Would you help me think through this? And the temptation is that all I'm looking for is somebody who will agree with the bad decision I'm about to make in my life. And that's the only reason you ask. Find somebody who's honest, somebody's rock solid, somebody's pure, somebody's truth, and they say, man, let me help you out with that. Proverbs says this, I love this verse, plans fail for lack of counsel. You don't get help, you're probably gonna fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. So when you got a tough decision, you find somebody who loves you, somebody who knows Jesus like you do, somebody who's gonna be honest with you, might be a good friend, might be an older person who's walked down that line before, okay? Might be a trusted pastor. John Talbot loves those calls about 2.30 in the morning. He loves to help you work through that kind of stuff. There's a verse in the Bible, um, and I'm gonna share this with you and we'll be, we'll be done. I want you to hear this. There's a verse in the Bible that says, Christians should always be ready to give an answer. Now, will you always know the answer when somebody asks you about your faith? You always ought to be ready with an answer. And you get those questions all the time. So why do you pray? They'll have an answer to that. Why do you go to church? You ought to have an answer to that. What's in the Bible that you think it's such a big deal? You ought to have an answer to that. Would God forgive somebody for what I did? You ought to have an answer. How come you got this Jesus thing going on? You ought to have an answer. If somebody asks you tomorrow, what's this deal about Jesus and you? Do you already know what you would say? Well, if you don't, after last half hour of your life, you got a good answer now, and here's the answer. I'm gonna tell you about Jesus. Because he has opened a lot of doors for me. And he has closed just as many. And it's hard telling what pasture I'd be in today if Jesus wasn't the door. Isn't that right? That's right. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the pictures that you had your son give to us. I thank you so much that he loves us so, so much more than we ever realized that he's out before, opening doors, closing doors, and we don't have to do this thing alone. One of my greatest heartaches in this lesson, Lord, was to think about the times of my life where I didn't walk through the doors that he opened and I knocked down the doors that he'd closed. And I pray that you'd help me and anybody in this room that needs to maybe do better about that. Thank you for who you are. Amen.